Welcome once again into the Radiopedia Reading Room, a podcast unconcerned with books or poetry, tea leaves or palmistry. It is but a humble radiology podcast. My name is Andrew Dixon and joining me to extend his weekly podcast attendance streak to 11 (laughs) and earning himself a gold badge in the process, it's my co-host, Frank Gaylard. Uh, I don't know, Dixon. I wish in some ways that I was uh, susceptible to gamification because then maybe I would care about closing my activity rings on my watch (laughs) or any of those things. Instead, for me, my activity rings are really there to document my lack of activity rather than motivate me to do anything. Are you susceptible to this? Uh, No, unfortunately, I'm not. But I do have two family members who are kind of obsessive about maintaining (laughs) their streak on Duolingo. But I I like that because they're actually learning a language. But I I really can't stand these kind of gamification and badges and trophies that come into, you know, games that are just highly addictive and don't result in any positive outcome in your life. Yeah, well, that's the issue, isn't it? Because it's not that it's a bad thing intrinsically. It's just, it's like a superhero power. If only they would use their power for good instead of evil. But when you get Candy Crush getting you to stay up till 2am, that's not good. We shouldn't be encouraging that. But I wish I was uh, able to, you know, do that extra few kilometres walk at night to close my move ring. My son's obsessed with it. He's always running up and down the hall at 10 o'clock at night to to finish his little red ring. The uh, the grandma of the podcast was in something like, I think it's called like Diamond League or something on Duolingo. I think this is like the top, the top league. Uh, and uh, she was at our house for the week and she didn't have to do much for the week. So she thought she'd just absolutely crush this, uh, this Diamond <laughs> League. And her strategy was to go hard early in the week so that she had like this massive thousands and thousands of point lead. And so it would kind of demoralize everybody else in the league. <laughs> so they'd give up for the week and it worked. She won. And then when she got to the end, she, re- she received something, but it wasn't very much of a, of a reward. And she was like, yeah, well, I'll never do that again. <laughs> Have you found Duolingo helpful for your family? Oh, well, yeah, they're progressing very well in okay. their, their languages. And just to be able to then go to school and to be confident. Like when I was in school, I was terrible at learning mm. languages. I had a couple of languages that I was learning and I was shocking. And that was back in the day where you'd have like a cassette tape or something, put it in the thing and maybe listen to someone speak the language. But I could imagine that now with with the gamification and the apps that exist would just be a totally different process. So you're not impressed with my gold badge that I've given you for your oh, no, no, I'm very, podcast it, attendance. It, it'll treat. go on the mantelpiece for sure. I want to see a social media tweet with you, big smiley <laughs> face, gold badge. Um, so for this week's episode, you've handed in your homework, Frank. I have indeed. In our last hostful episode, I set you the task of approaching neurointerventional radiologist Nathan Manning for a chat about stroke management and thrombectomy. And you've returned with something for us. Yes. And it was very good to catch up with Nathan. So we have an interview. I've got my marking pen out, ready to assess your work, Gaylard. So let's listen in and see if you can unlock your Ruby-level interview gem, <laughs> and then we'll be back for a bit more of a chat. Let's do that. I'm joined today by Nathan Manning. How are you, Nathan? I'm great, Frank. How are you? I'm I'm well. Now, you're sort of a friend of the podcast without actually having been on the podcast yet because <laughs> both Andrew and I do know you. You went through 
training with Andrew. Is that right? Yeah, we were the same year at different hospitals, but uh, same year and studied together a bit and obviously went to uh, lectures together. Do you remember Andrew from there? What was he like? Yeah, I, I, sad to say, very competent, even back there. Was he cocky? Was he very, very cocky? Well, you know, you're talking to me, sorry. <laughs> In comparison, not so much. <laughs> but I can remember having an argument uh, with him about whether or not AI was going to take over diagnostic radiology. And I guess from my career choice, I was arguing in the affirmative that it was only a matter of time. And he was saying it definitely wasn't. And so I guess so far, he's been right. Yeah, it is only a matter of time though. It's just a question of whether time comes before or after we pay off our mortgages. (laughs) And I remember you because you trained at Royal Melbourne. And I think I must have been either a fellow or a senior uh, registrar because I was in on your interview and uh, you, you told some story. It was very impressive about y- rock climbing and how it was just you and the mountain. <laughs> you spoke very well and I'm not surprised that you've gone on now to be an interventional radiologist in Sydney after doing training in New York. Is that right? Yeah, I spent, um, I did one fellowship at Royal Melbourne uh, doing both body and neuro and then I went over to Columbia in New York and did two extra years of uh, just neuro there. And now you're purely a neurointerventionalist in Sydney. That's right. You do not want my opinion on an MRI unless it's <laughs> to work out if someone's had a stroke or an aneurysm. I, I probably want your opinion on an MRI more than you want me coiling an aneurysm. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> now, the reason you're here is because uh, there was a, a very big trial, the Select 2 trial that was published uh, recently in the New England Journal. And as we were leafing through it, we noticed that your name, along with a whole bunch of other people that we recognize from Melbourne, uh, was there. And we thought, you know, this is a practice-changing trial, uh, along with uh, the Angel Aspects trial that came out at the same time. And we wanted to get someone who knew what they were talking about. Not that not knowing what we're talking about ever stops Andrew or I talking about (laughs) it anyway. But before we get going, can you tell us a little bit about how endovascular clock retrieval for stroke has evolved before the 2015 papers and then what those group of papers meant and where we were up to before this trial that has just been published. Yeah, for sure. So it's reasonable to sort of think of of stroke therapy, not just neurointerventional stroke therapy, but stroke therapy as having, I think, three definable eras and we're currently in the fourth era and we might even be getting close to the end of the four and they've been getting shorter and shorter and shorter which i think is interesting as well and maybe for all i know mirrors other aspects of medicine as well prior to sort of the mid 90s you were in the era of supportive care and the biggest step forward with respect to stroke outcomes really came about from the introduction of of stroke units where you were gathering together experts, not just neurologists, but allied health people, nursing staff. You were preventing the things that were really killing stroke patients, which were things like aspiration pneumonias and other infections and PEs. And that made a huge difference in outcomes without actually changing the stroke at all. Yeah. And that's sort of similar, I suppose, to trauma where, you know, you have your primary injuries and then you have all your secondary injuries and it's the secondary ones that you can avoid the most easily. That's a great analogy because it also uh, represents 
the mindset that the stroke was unavoidable or once it had occurred, there was nothing you could do much in the same way as can't reverse a car accident. They've got their injuries and then you've got to supportively care them. And then in the mid nineties, um, systemic thrombolysis sort of broke through and that's a really fascinating story. It doesn't have a lot to do with uh, radiology. It has a little bit to do with it, but doesn't have a lot to do with it. Um, and when you delve into it, it, it was far from certain that systemic thrombolysis was going to be proven effective. And the NINS trial, uh, which was published in 96, uh, was the first trial to show that IVTPA actually improved outcomes. Many other of the European trials, the ECAS trials, and a couple of others had actually shown harm. Right. NINS broke through and showed a significant, statistically significant advantage to IV thrombolysis. And were they using um, TPA or were they using streptokinase? That was TPA. There had been some strepto. Right. What was thought to be the secret source of NINS was that they got TPA in within zero to three hours. And that was the whole basis mm. of this time that we've been wedded to. That's a really interesting parallel with what comes next, though, because, Mm. you know, you have the same technology, if you want, being trialled initially, presumably due to which patients were being selected for and how the trials were being run, and not only failing to show a benefit, but actually potentially showing a harm. Yeah, exactly. And at the same time as that was happening, people thought endovascular therapy would work, but the problem is we just couldn't prove it. And a lot of it was about our techniques. And so here we're in the second era, which is perhaps a little bit judgy. I'm calling minimally effective reperfusion therapy, (laughs) and that's TPA. And we know from uh, great studies, Jeff Saver did a bunch of studies that around sort of 20 to 40% of people reperfuse with TPA. They generally have small clot burden. So we're talking more about small vessel smaller vessels rather than your M1s, your ICAs. Um, and they reperfuse, you know, over 24 to 48 hours. So whether or not they're reperfusing in time was an open question. Well, so that's also, I think, something that non-neuro people, and I certainly underappreciated, is just how often clots dissolve and break up on their own. Yeah, that's correct. So teasing out whatever the effect of the therapy is. So maybe this era should be called aspirational reperfusion. (laughs) And that is a real key thing. And that's where the first endovascular trials fell down. That idea that opening up the vessel was obviously the right thing to do. There was some argument about that, but the first endovascular trials suffered from two big flaws. And I'm talking here about, uh, IMS three, the Italian study, which was synthesis and MR rescue. And they were all published in 2013 in new England journal. And they all showed that endovascular therapy was no better than Uh, systemic thrombolysis and potentially even a little bit worse. The issues with IMS3 and synthesis didn't require you to demonstrate a vascular occlusion. Oh, that seems important. Yeah, it seems completely crazy to us now, right? And MR Rescue was more sophisticated, but just really got its penumbral ratios and its penumbral ideas wrong. That was an MR select study. It was really a study designed to see if MR could select patients that would benefit, not really comparing thrombolysis to endovascular, but they just got the comparison. They got their groups all wrong. That brings us up to 2015. Yeah. And so one of the things about those trials is that they were claiming to get reperfusion, but their idea of reperfusion was pretty uh, generous. 
and then all of a sudden, uh, stent retrievers arrived on the scene, this serendipitous discovery. So these revolutionary devices who now have number needed to treat the same as antibiotics in severe sepsis and defibrillation of malignant arrhythmias, right? So these devices not intended for stroke at all. It was intended to be a scaffolding to use whilst coiling an aneurysm. It was called the Solitaire AB, the Solitaire Aneurysm Mm -hmm. Bridge. And it was essentially a retrievable stent that you deployed across the neck of the aneurysm. You put coils in the aneurysm and the stent holds the coils out of the parent vessel, which is obviously what you want. And then you can attempt to retrieve that stent. And if the coils stay in the aneurysm, fantastic. You take the stent out. That's great. If the coils start to fall down, you redeploy the stent and then you could detach the stent and leave it in situ. And out of sheer desperation, people started stenting these blood clots because these M1s with thrombus in them just to try and get it open. And somebody, and there's various people, the guys at Royal North Shore in Sydney claim to have been the first. Dave Fiorella claims to be the first. Everyone claims to be the first, basically. (laughs) But somebody put one of these stents in, decided they didn't like where it was, so pulled it out and the clot was on the stent. And all of a sudden they went, aha. Ah, that's fantastic. And the company did nothing other than change the box to Solitaire FR Flow Restorer. (laughs) And and with that, uh, the 2015 trials were formed and showed this huge difference in outcomes compared to systemic thrombosis because you went from getting maybe 30% reperfusion over some sort of time course to being able to get a complete reperfusion or, or greater than 50% reperfusion at least in, you know, a matter of sort of 45 minutes. And it was a, literally a game changer and the, the whole field changed overnight. Right. Well, Royal Melbourne was at the forefront. I was doing my first fellowship in 2012 and, you know, it was then at that point it had become routine to be pulling out clots with this device. And it was one of those things that, you know, somebody that was hemiplegic, we'd pull the clot out and they'd high five you later. And it was one of the most thrilling times of my life. And then they started enrolling in Extend IA sort of about halfway through my fellowship, actually. So those 2015 trials, not only did they revolutionize treatment, and in a way that doesn't happen that often in medicine, where there's a discrete point in time that you can point to where there's a before and an after, but because of how common strokes are, it also had a tremendous effect on the number of people that need to train in clot retrieval, and what that training looks like and what accreditation looks like and how many interventional neuroradiologists a, a country needs, that must be something that we're still playing catch up, presumably. That's a really complicated question to answer. And it's, I think it's become quite emotive and, you know, there's nothing short of, of sort of World War One-esque trenches being drawn between the sides and things like that. You know, when I was trying to get onto a neurointerventional fellowship, it was, I wouldn't say it was a competitive process. You know, it was just a a couple of other sadomasochists that, (laughs) that, that were, you know, interested in this terrible lifestyle and having all this stress. During my fellowship years, there was this huge revolution where we were suddenly had this confidence that we were really helping people. And all this work to do, which was predominantly happening sort of between, it seems to be between sort of 10 p.m. and and 5 a.m., which is a huge issue. But the 
the converse is that the aneurysms haven't grown commensurately. The AVMs haven't grown commensurately. So we can't have lots and lots of people doing strokes that like we need and also doing aneurysms and AVMs. And so by the same token, you can't really create a two-tier specialty. Uh, and so this remains one of our great unsolved issues. Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And one of the things that resulted in this change is not just the uh, fact that clot retrieval worked, but it was within six hours. Is that right? Yeah. Um, some went out to eight, but yeah, the predominant was was out to six. And also they were excluding patients that had very large cause. Yeah, that's correct. Um, you know, Extend IA, which was very, very heavily imaging based, it was a real CTP and thrombectomy trial. And, you know, what it did, which I think was brilliant from Peter and Bruce, was it identified patients with the most to lose, right? So you had patients that had pretty small cores and big penumbras and if they didn't open that vessel, they were going to end up with big strokes. And if they did open that vessel, they were going to end up with much, much smaller strokes. So that really essentially juiced the results. And they were able to show statistical significance with 75 patients in each arm, which is just crazy. Okay. So that brings us up to uh, 2015 and up to, I guess, a few months ago now. Uh, so tell me about Select2 and what it sought to do and how you got involved and uh, you know you are one of many people from many institutions and how does that sort of trial even get off the ground? Having been involved in getting my own trials going, I'm in awe of Amru and uh, Amir and their teams. So Select2, which was designed based on a phase two cohort study called Select to work out the inclusion criteria. It ended up enrolling 352 patients across 31 sites in uh, US, Canada, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. Uh, it was stopped early because of the publication of a Japanese study of similar but significantly different patient group, which showed that mechanical thrombectomy was superior to medical management, and that prompted review of the Data Monitoring and Safety Board, and they recommended early termination of the trial. The selection criteria, it was uh, 18 to 85-year-olds, although I would wager that there were very few 18-year-olds. Um, you had to be MRS 0 to 1 to get in, which is essentially no or minimal disability. You're entirely functionally independent and pretty normal. And you had to have either an aspect score of 3 to 5, which indicates a pretty big stroke, more than half the hemisphere. Yeah, so let's just pause there. And, and for people that aren't familiar with the aspects, so uh, aspects is uh, on non-contrast CT and it defines a number of regions at different levels of the brain and you start count losing points for the more regions that are involved. Yeah, as aspects of 10 means there's no evidence of early ischemic change. And the early ischemic change is limited to loss of gray-white differentiation. So you don't use things like sulcal swelling or, or sorry, sulcal effacement or swelling or things like that. You, you need to see preservation of gray-white differentiation. There's sort of three areas in the basal ganglia 
the lentiform nucleus, the internal capsule chordate head. There's the uh, insular cortex, and that's uh, at the one level. And then there's six sort of cortical regions that are sort of at and above the level of the ventricles. And every time any part of that on at least two contiguous splices demonstrates loss of gray-white uh, function, you lose a point. But, you know, an aspects of three means that about 70% of the hemisphere is, is gone. Yeah, and that's a really important thing because it's a big stroke that used to be excluded from these trials and used to not receive yeah. endovascular cost. So the idea was that it was kind of a waste of everyone's time and resources, and that can sound barbaric, but these are expensive procedures. And, you know, every 85-year-old you put in the ICU with a stroke that you don't think is going to recover, perhaps the... 18-year-old having a car accident doesn't get as good care. So, I mean, that's an enormous topic that's, you know, well beyond the scope of uh, any uh, short format podcast because it really strikes <laughs> at the heart of uh, ethics and morality and who should be making these decisions. But I think everyone can agree that however these decisions are made, we need to do it with the best information that we have at our disposal. And so these trials are crucial in making sensible evidence-based decision. Okay, and so now let's get to the juicy thing about what uh, Select2 found and what this means to everyday practice of stroke management. Yeah, so I think, you know, as we said, aspects three to five or uh, a core on either MRI, i.e. DWI, or CTP, and that would have been... um, a relative CBF of 30% or less of of normal of 50 mils, which I think is a pretty, that is a pretty small, big core. Mm-hmm. There's still some autonomy, I think, for individual investigators. And we decided that we wouldn't, you know, we would only accept truly big cores. We would only randomize truly big cores. We basically decided that we would only randomize patients for this study whom we would not normally have offered ECR. Right. Well, and that's the question that needed answering. Yeah, and that was a local decision. As always, um, you know, the devil's in the detail and the more you start scratching the surface, the the harder it is to really understand what's going on. Well, I think that's a really good point. So a, a couple of points I do want to make. This trial essentially uh, was actually quite highly effective. It showed an odds ratio of downshifting your MRS, so improving your 90-day functional outcome. And so MRS is the modified Rankin scale, which is a disability scale. Is that correct? That's right. And so, yeah, zero is no disability whatsoever. One is minimal symptoms and you can live an entirely normal life and do everything that you want to do, but you do have symptoms. Two is you're entirely independent, but there are some things you used to be able to do that you can no longer do. Three is you need a little bit of assistance, but you can ambulate independently. Four is you need assistance um, and you probably need assistance with gait and you probably can't be left alone for more than a day. Uh, uh, five is essentially nursing home care and six is is death. Yeah, and I think the the use of a scale like this and the MRS scale is is probably the most commonly used in this scenario is really important because it addresses reservation that many cynics or critics would have of these kind of interventions. Uh, And it's seen in in neurosurgical interventions and craniectomies, for example, where 
yes, yes, it's fine. It saves lives. But are you transforming someone who would have died into a completely dependent nursing home uh, person? And, and is that, I mean, that's another ethical discussion to be had. But both the 2015 trials and now you're really showing that not only do you, is your survival better and you're pushing people to better outcomes in every section. That's right. In the 2015 trials and then also the Diffuse 3 and Dawn, which looked at going out to 24 hours, in fact, there was no difference between the two groups for MRS6. So mm. the same number of people died in both groups. And all that you did was move people out of nursing home or out of dependency and down into better outcomes. Zero to three means that you're living at home comfortably. And that's become sort of a more effective way of looking at it. And in these studies, both in that Japanese study that was published last year and Select 2, the, the study that I was involved with, and also another study called ANGEL, which was a Chinese study that was published at the same time as Select 2. For MRS 0 to 3, though, we were getting around 30 to 40% for these uh, large core strokes, which is comes as a bit of a shock, I have to say. Well, and I think, again, uh, ethics and uh, morality aside, the reality is that economic constraints exist in every health system of every country. And so noticing that treatments displace people from very expensive, intensive, supportive care back to the community not only sounds awesome for the patients, but actually really offsets potentially the cost of the intervention. Absolutely. One of the really genius analysis that was done in Extend IA, and I'm shocked that it's not done more commonly, they looked at the number of days spent at home in the first 90 days post-stroke. And the mechanical thrombectomy, um, I think the median was like 60 days spent at home out of the first uh, 90, and the IV thrombolysis was something like 17 Right, a massive difference. And so just with that alone, you've paid for that operation, you know, 10 times over. Yeah, and I think those are the calculus that need to be included when when looking at any of these interventions. You can't just look at the cost of the stent. Uh, you have to look at the cost and savings on both sides and also, I guess, at the opportunity cost. You know, what aren't you doing yeah. with that money or the angiolab or that radiologist? That's very true. And these are ridiculously complicated questions. Yeah. Well, so I guess what this trial shows is that taking clots out of big cores does not lead to a, a big rise in post retrieval hemorrhages, for example. Absolutely. In fact, uh, in Select 2, there were less hemorrhages, I think, in the ACR group than the hmm. than the medical managed group. In ANGEL and in the Japanese study, I think it was slightly more in the ACR group than the medical managed group, but not very significant. There was no evidence of increased craniectomies or evidence of malignant edema. So it does seem to be safe to do, certainly. It seems to be effective in these patients. And I think if you want to know what I think is the next trial to do is whether or not we really need to do so much imaging. Well, that's right. The, the further you go and the further you show that you're not doing harm by retrieving, the less emphasis you need to put on exactly defining the size of the core or the penumbra. Exactly. Have a go. Exactly. And I think that kind of, you know, if I was had all the resources in the world and could run my own trial, that's the trial I'd be doing. And personally, I would love the idea of not having to do 
stroke protocol imaging ever again. <laughs> Just one non-contrast CT slice through the ventricles yeah. and that's it. That's what you get. All right. Now, this leads nicely to one of the questions we like to, uh, to ask our guests maybe going forward because we haven't had that many guests yet since we're just starting. <laughs> but um, you've kind of hinted at this, but what would be your most disliked, in your case, not study, but procedure uh, versus your the one that you really like the most? Probably doing a diagnostic angiogram for query cerebral vasculitis. Oh, you don't like that? It's a personal bugbear. Even more than uh, spinal angiography for a dural AV fistula? No, I don't mind that because we don't do it so often. But to be honest, what I really hate doing is trying to embolize an AVM or something like that. But that's not about annoyance. That's about sheer terror. Yeah, especially if they're asymptomatic young patients. Oh. That's, uh, I don't know how, how you do it, to tell you the truth. And, and what's your favorite? Is it taking out a big clot in a young patient who's hemiplegic and watching them walk out two days later? It's undeniably fantastic when that happens. It's an amazing experience, but, you know, uh, last Tuesday I was in rooms and, you know, I had to shuffle the chairs around to make sure the wheelchair could get in. Yeah, it's not always. And so that's also a really hard conversation to have. This is an aside, but one of the roles that I think radiologists can have for, for referring clinicians is sort of almost a counsellor role. And it, it's not infrequent now that I'm a little bit older to have clinicians or surgeons just come and, and talk through a case that's gone badly and to try and understand the imaging and understanding what's happened mm. afterwards. And every time I have one of those conversations, and I had a couple recently where completely through no fault of the surgeon and, and nothing could have been done differently, but there was a, a pretty devastating neurological deficit post-surgery. The fact that surgeons and, and folk like you need not only to go and see that patient the next day, but you need to do the next case on the list and you need to come in the next day and do the same procedure on the next person. And uh, I find that, and having started my career as an aspiring neurosurgeon and realizing that it really wasn't for me, I'm still really in awe of, of that resilience that you need to show and do you think you get burnt out by it or are the the wins enough to keep you going um i don't know the answer if i'm completely honest i'm i'm not convinced that that i can get through it all hmm. uh i think often i feel like i'm staring into a void without having any good answers to the questions and really unsure and i think you know, when bad things have happened, I, uh, I really, it does hit, I mean, I'm sure it hits everyone hard, but it hits me hard. And I think often if, if another bad thing happens, I'm not sure I can take it. Yeah. And yet then you sort of build up, you know, you, you get through the months and good things happen and you think, okay, yeah, maybe I can do this. Maybe I'm not terrible at it. And then a bad thing happens and you think, geez, maybe I am terrible at it. It is amazing how much of medicine and uh, well, medicine in general, I don't think anyone really has a, a monopoly on this feeling, is about your self-confidence and how easily that can be shattered with a couple of misses, a couple of complications. But, I mean, this is a, a very down, depressing way to end. 
<laughs> and uh, so if you're going to be a superhero, would you wear a cape or not? I would definitely. I picture you like a cape kind yeah, of Yeah, I mean, I would yeah. wear one now, superhero or not, if I could. But <laughs> I have thought about my superpower a lot and I would like the power to sleep like 10 people so that I could sleep for one hour and it would be like 10 hours. Oh. That would be the superpower that I want. You haven't tried polyphasic sleeping? I mean, you do by just sheer nature of your work. I haven't tried it. I've got a friend, I'm not sure if he's still doing it, but for years he was sleeping from midnight to 3 a.m. and then having like four 20-minute naps scattered through the day and that was it. Oof. I mean, it, it frees up a lot of time. He didn't blink quite as much as normal people do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it had other effects, but uh, <laughs> anyway, Nathan, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you and congratulations on the trial again. And hopefully you hang in there because we need people like you and uh, get on and prove the next, the next study. Well, I hope so. Thanks, Frank. It's been really fun. Great. Thanks, Nathan. Bye-bye. Cheers, mate. Bye. Ruby level interview gem unlocked. <laughs> that was an awesome interview, Frank. Well done. Uh, thank you. It was fun talking to him. Nathan was fantastic. I'll get back to it more in a moment, but I really appreciated his openness and honesty about the nature of his job towards the end of that interview. I did notice, though, that you tried to lay a trap for Nathan and get him to say something bad about me. Uh, it wasn't anywhere near as cunning as it should have been. Nathan is too wily a customer to fall for something <laughs> so overt. It was worth a shot, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good try. I've jotted down three quick discussion points here that I want to touch on. Uh, firstly, I love the possibility of less need for diagnostic imaging in stroke, uh, particularly perfusion imaging in the future. Mm -hmm. um, it's definitely something I've noticed over the last few years myself that the perfusion CT is becoming less and less important in the decision making, particularly in the first six hours, it's basically not needed. And even out to 24 hours now with these new studies, uh, when you're just looking at aspect scores, the perfusion really doesn't need to come into it a whole lot. And so all we need to do really is look for a large vessel occlusion and then take them off for their clot retrieval. I mean, that's the real key is to demonstrate that you're not doing harm by attempting clot retrieval. And this study gets uh, some way there. It doesn't, you know, seal the deal, but it seems to support the idea that you don't have too much to lose by retrieving clots. Yeah, I see a lot of artifacts and misinterpretation of perfusion CT. And so mm. if we can cut that out of the process, we're potentially reducing harm because of, you know, people over-relying on the technology of perfusion and not going back to the basics of well, there's a large vessel occlusion, uh, we should just go and retrieve this clot. And it is relatively high radiation dose as well. Yeah, and, and contrast as well. The second thing I've written down here is neurointerventional workforce stroke conundrum and the need for neurointerventional radiologists to be available in the nighttime, really from, you know, I think Nathan mentioned 11 p.m. through to 5 a.m. for clot retrievals, but there's not enough for them to necessarily do during the daytime because the aneurysm work and the AVM work hasn't really increased over the years. I think that's a kind of important challenge for the future. It's one of the things that I wonder about is how much overlap there is between being a aneurysm and AVM and dual AV fistula treating neurointerventionalists versus clot retrieval. If you go back, say, 20 years or probably a bit more, um, we just had interventional radiologists and diagnostic. And even that 
distinction was sort of blurred. And then the neuro intervention got carved out as it was recognized that that was a, a different set of skills and that mm-hmm. you couldn't necessarily treat these lesions if you were a peripheral interventionalist and vice versa. And so maybe clot retrieval as a subset is not the same thing as a general neuro interventionalist. And maybe you can have a group of clinicians or radiologists who can clot retrieve but can't do any of the other procedures. And during the day, they work as neurologists or diagnostic radiologists. Mm. I mean, we have neurology uh, people doing neurointervention, but they do the whole gamut. Do you have neurointerventionalists that are non-radiologists? Yeah, we have two at our hospital who are radiologists. And then we have one who's a neurosurgeon who does endovascular clot retrieval. And we also have one who's a neurologist who uh, does retrievals as well. Do they also treat aneurysms and AVMs? I'm not sure that the neurologist does, but the neurosurgeon does. Right. And so that works quite well. But what what can we get the neurointerventional radiologists doing during the daytime? I know they see a lot of their patients and preparing for their aneurysms and AVM procedures. But, you know, I wonder whether the diagnostic side could be increased, whether, you know, reporting the follow-up MRAs and CTAs on Mm. patients who've had coils could be something they do. Because I end up reporting a lot of those as a neuroradiologist. uh, And I'm sure that the neurointerventional radiologist is also looking at the scan. It's just that they're not reporting them. And they probably have uh, a better uh, way of approaching them than I do. Based on uh, my local experience, as as much as I love my neurointerventionalist colleagues. They're a great bunch of people. They always seem to have a little bit of reticence to take on the whole CTA follow-up group. Maybe they can bring us coffees during the day if they've got nothing else to do. (laughs) A bit of a neck rub. (laughs) They can uh, sit in the corner humming some tunes. I almost wonder whether if remotely operated robot-assisted clot retrieval could become a thing in the future, you know, to perform a bit of a time shift. Like Mm. we kind of do with... With teleradiology, you know, might have a reporting hub in London reporting after hours mm. films for Melbourne. Could you potentially have a neurointerventional radiologist sitting in London driving a robot in Melbourne to retrieve clots from a stroke patient? And you just need someone to put in the sheath and load up yeah. the machine locally. I don't know. Do those exist? I think there are angio robots available. I don't know if they clot retrieve, but it seems like an ideal you know, speaking as someone who knows nothing about it, it speaks <laughs> sounds like an ideal situation where doing it in real life, you're already operating remotely in that you're handling at the groin something that's, you know, moving a meter yeah. away via a catheter. And you're not dissecting through different tissue planes and all that kind of thing. You're really just, you're into the vessel and then the vessel is guiding you. But yeah, I think we may be oversimplifying <laughs> Maybe what it is bit. to retrieve a clot. <laughs> clot. But, um, but I just wonder whether that, that may happen in the future to kind of, that may help solve this mm. problem of, of all the work or majority of the work occurring during the nighttime. It certainly solved the problem for after hours radiology. Didn't Would it? you be interested in uh, upskilling if, if, if your department said, look, we'll train you up to just clot retrieve. You don't need to do anything else. W- would you take that on? Uh, not with the current uh, way in which the time the time occurs and you need yeah, to be available right. to do it. If it was driving a robot and it was during daytime hours and you got to do other work between times, yeah, I'd potentially do oh, that. Especially if you, you got little badges for clot retrieval. 
Bling. Like, bing, that's three clocks in a row. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's what we need to do for neurointervention. That'll solve the whole out-of-hours problem. You get a badge for going in after 1am. <laughs> yeah, we, we get the developers of Angry Birds to collaborate on a clock retrieval app. <laughs> <laughs> and the third thing I want to touch on was that part of the interview about the emotional drain of managing stroke, you yeah, know, burnout, right. picking yourself up after a case going wrong. I really want to commend Nathan for discussing those kind of things so openly and, and also you, Frank, for, for taking him there. I, I think it's something that the trainees really need to hear and that I, I don't think they do hear it that often. They kind of hear about the, the great side of, of interventional radiology being able to yeah. treat all these amazing things and have great patient outcomes, but I don't think they hear about necessarily the day-to-day reality of it. And so I think it is something that people really need to to reflect on. So this podcast hopefully will be useful for, for trainees out there in their decision-making. It's also, I think, that you're asking someone to make decisions about the rest of their life when they're young and, and it's not necessarily the person mm-hmm. they'll be later. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted to be a neurosurgeon when I was a teenager and that's why I got into medicine and, and got all the way to doing some unaccredited training because I thought cracking open skulls sounded really like fun. Yeah. And now, you know, as a 40 something year old, the idea of being a neurosurgeon sounds awful. In fact, it sounded awful when I was 30 and actually started that process. But um, I don't think you want to ask a young person to decide what a, a middle-aged person wants to do when they've got a family, etc. cetera. Uh, yeah. But you're right that I don't think people are honest about the impact that medicine can have on you psychologically and emotionally. These are the horrible experiences that you go through and it takes a particular personality to deal with it, but I think it affects everyone. Yeah. And Nathan, I mean, as he, as he admitted to, he's, he's a guy who has a whole lot of confidence about yeah, him absolutely. and he's, you know, passionate about this job. It really is a vocation, but even a personality like that can be really beaten down by a job, a job like that. I think the other thing that is still present in medicine culturally is this idea that you shouldn't show weakness and that these things shouldn't affect you. Uh, I think that is changing slowly, uh, but it's still not admitted as often as it probably should be that seeing someone die or have a stroke in front of you especially at your hands, that's not a, a normal thing for people to deal with. And it's not surprising that it does have consequences. But historically, we've sort of uh, avoided discussing this, I guess, in the same way as other stressful professions have. Like I'm sure in the military, it was uh, not discussed openly what the effects of conflict are, but they occur and ignoring mm-hmm. it Uh, makes it worse. So hopefully training programs, particularly those where that sort of events are likely, like emergency or neurosurgery or clot retrieval and neurointervention, hopefully they're taking that into account and consultants are discussing openly with trainees before they embark on it, what it means to do this for a whole career. And to a lesser degree, it also happens in diagnostic radiology as as well, doesn't it? You know, you Hmm. you always have cases where you, you miss something that was really important and the patient might have uh, a delayed diagnosis or something because of your 
actions. And it's really important to reflect on that, uh, not just dismiss it entirely and continue on with your job, but to reflect on that, how can I improve? But also you don't want to let it destroy your confidence. Uh, and then, yeah. you know, you're suddenly over um, protective. You're spending way too long on every single scan and you're reporting very, very defensively. Yeah, that's a really good point. We probably should wrap things up here, Frank. Hmm. How can people get in contact with us? Well, we are at Radiopedia on Twitter and on Instagram, as well as at Frank Gaylard and Dr. Andrew Dixon. And you can email us at podcast at radiopedia.org with any ideas and uh, feedback and uh, I guess ideas for award badges for our <laughs> guests and each other. <laughs> so not next week, but the week after we're planning a hostful episode. So if you have any topics that you want us to discuss, uh, any recent journal articles for the Journal Club, etc., then please let us know and we'll uh, see what we can do. And if you want to help support Radiopedia, then you can become a paid supporter via the website or purchase an all-access pass to our online courses and conference. Don't forget that doing so, you're helping us make all the conference free to everyone in 125 low- and middle-income countries. And what else can people do, Frank? And you can also help us by leaving a five-star, no less than five-star review in the podcast app of your choosing. Awesome. All right. We'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. Stay rad. See you, mate. <laughs> Bye-bye. Grab those gems. Dear listeners, this is the moment where I get to speak to you directly while Andrew's answering the door and fending off his dog.